Luke 24, I'll begin by reading the first three verses, and then I will skip down to verse 13 and read through verse 35. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, speaking of the women, the group of women, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 13. That very day, two of them, two disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our, of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even, that had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is now toward evening, and the day is now far, is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Tonight on NBC, they're going to present an updated live version of Jesus Christ Superstar, the play that depicts the life of Jesus Christ. 
Well, kind of. They do this so that we can end our Easter day celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ by watching a heretical portrayal of the life of Jesus that ends with his death and denies his resurrection. Tim Rice, who was one of the two writers of the original version of the play back in the 1970s, said this about the play. He said, it happens that we don't see Christ as God, but simply the right man at the right time at the right place. I read an article on NPR about it this week where they said the show is a reminder that all human beings have a light worth sharing with their neighbors. That is the anti-gospel. There is so much at stake here as we consider the message of the church of Jesus Christ and the message of the world. We must be sure about our message. The implications are huge. One of my favorite quotes about the resurrection of Christ comes from Philip Yancey. He said this, he said, In many respects, I find an unresurrected Jesus easier to to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Moreover, Easter means he must be loose out there somewhere. (laughs) In terms of the famous argument from C.S. Lewis... If Jesus is not raised from the dead, he was either a liar or a lunatic. But if Jesus is raised from the dead, he is Lord. Here in Luke 24, we meet two ordinary disciples, disciples like you or me. Two that are from the outer ring or outer circle of the disciples that the gospel accounts tell us about, not the Not of the 11, but from the larger group of disciples who followed Christ during his life and ministry. They're walking home to Emmaus, which was about a seven-mile walk, on the day of the resurrection, the third day after Christ was crucified. Put yourself in the sandals of these disciples walking on this road. Their whole life, their whole world has just been shaken. I mean, imagine what it was like for residents and workers in the city of New York City on 9-11, going home that day, the ones who survived. Their whole world had been shaken. For these two disciples, it was far more shocking than that. They're in the midst of a crisis of faith. Verse 14 describes, as they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, the arrest of Christ, the trial the crucifixion, trying to make sense of it all. And suddenly, they're surprised by another traveler on the road. Someone who comes up to them and interjects himself into their conversation. He walks up to them and says, so, what are you guys talking about? This was the very first April Fool's Day prank. If you've ever wanted theological justification for April Fool's Day jokes, here it is. Our risen Lord disguised himself 
came up to these men, pretended he didn't know anything, acting like a rude, clueless stranger, and asked them questions about what had just happened in Jerusalem. There is a lesson in here for April Fool's Day pranks, though. They should always be for the person's benefit. <laughs> Something good to the person, to uplift the person, not to be mean-spirited and make them feel bad about themselves, humiliate them. There's a real mystery here, though, isn't there? Why couldn't these disciples recognize him? Fred, even this week, gone back over many, many theories about why these disciples didn't recognize Christ. They were disciples. They had followed him during his teaching, his ministry. They knew all about him. Why didn't they recognize him? Well, they weren't the only ones. You remember Mary Magdalene? They thought he, she thought Jesus was a gardener when she met him outside the tomb, the risen Christ. Didn't recognize him until he spoke her name. Matthew tells us that when the disciples first met with Christ in Galilee, the risen Christ, they worshipped him, according to Matthew, but some doubted. Is this really the same Christ? Is this really the risen Jesus Christ? And then you have that story in John 21 where the disciples are out on the boat fishing and Jesus comes up on the shore and they don't recognize him until he does the miracle with the fish. How did they not recognize him? And again, there's all kinds of theories about this. But I love the fact that Luke gives us a hint. He tells us, really, why here at least the disciples didn't recognize him. It says in verse 16 that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It was a miracle. God intervened to blind them for a moment, for a while, to who Christ was. And then at the right point, it says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. I think it's meant to be a picture to us of what conversion is. We see but we don't see. Those who have eyes that don't see. Those that have ears but don't hear. And then all of a sudden God does something and all of a sudden you see and you hear. That's what conversion is, really. And these two disciples experienced it in a very vivid way. Now again, putting yourself back in their sandals and you're walking along this road in this very rude Stranger comes up and says, what are you guys talking about? And the reaction is kind of like what you'd expect. Like, have you been living under a rock these last few days? I mean, you, you were in Jerusalem just like we were. How could you not know what's happened? The whole city has been talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And yet their first reaction is silence. Do you notice that? It says they stood still looking sad. I love that, how scripture sometimes will just take a moment to kind of draw you emotionally into it. These are bewildered, grieving, disappointed, disillusioned disciples. The Lord that they had committed their life to is dead. And so they're, they stand still, they're speechless to answer the questions. Deeply saddened, like when somebody asks you when your loved one has just died, how do you feel about it? You don't have words to express. But what they say in verse 21 is that we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Somebody talks about the gospel of, Cle of, of Cleopas here. The gospel of Cleopas has all the right facts, all the important details. He talks about the life and ministry of Christ and his miracles and his works and his great words. He talks about his his trial, his torture, his death on the cross. But 
Cleopas's gospel ends with an empty tomb and no explanation for it. But they did not yet hope. They would not allow themselves any hope that this rumor that was out there that somehow Jesus was now alive, they would not believe. And now they're headed back to their home, to their pre-Christ lives, to try to find hope somewhere else. Maybe you're the same, at the same place this morning. You've heard the rumors that Jesus is alive, and yet you're not really sure. You don't know what to believe. You don't know whether to stake your life on the truth that Jesus Christ is risen. How can you be sure? And that's really what every Easter Sunday is, every Sunday for that matter, but especially on Easter Sunday. We come together to be reassured that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Because in that certainty, we find the boldness for our witness. And what's interesting to me in this story of these ordinary disciples... How Christ chose two otherwise nameless disciples, not known for anything else. He reveals himself to them in the same way that he still, still reveals himself to sinners today. Yes, there are miracles around this event. But the essential means by which Christ reveals himself to these disciples is the same way that he reveals himself today. God uses the same means to convince them that he uses to convince sinners today. Three testimonies. The testimony of eyewitnesses, the testimony of Scripture, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. It's the same way he works today. The first of all, the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Think about it. How do you know anything about history? How do you know anything about anything that's happened in the world outside of your own life? You know it by the account of eyewitnesses. That's what a historian does, is he takes together the accounts of eyewitnesses and puts it together to form the narrative of what history is. Everything you know about history comes from the account of eyewitnesses. And so the only question you have to answer when you hear eyewitness accounts is, how reliable are these witnesses? Can you trust the account of the eyewitnesses? And so is the case here. Let me go back and read verses 20 through 24, where these two disciples talk about eyewitness accounts that they have heard about. Verse 22, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They had eyewitness accounts, not only of an empty tomb, but of an angelic declaration that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. But you can tell that they had responded the same way that the, other, that the, the central 11 apostles had responded. Go back to the part of it that we uh, didn't read earlier, back to verse 10, where it gives the same account. Verse 10 says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. There was an eyewitness account 
but they would not yet believe. But soon, Jesus would also appear to Peter and to the other 11, to the other apostles, the rest of the 11, on multiple occasions. And Paul tells us at one point that Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, appeared to 500 witnesses, over 500 at the same time. According to Acts chapter 1, it tells us that the apostle, what it meant to be an apostle, the purpose of an apostle was to be a witness to the resurrection. That's what an apostle is. A witness to the resurrection. And these eyewitnesses, speaking of the 11, not, just, not, not, not even to speak of the rest, the hundreds otherwise, but these 11 these primary witnesses to the resurrection devoted the rest of their lives to proclaiming that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. The center of every sermon that you read in the book of Acts is that message. This Jesus, God has raised from the dead. The center of every sermon preached in Acts. And these ordinary, common, unremarkable men went forth as witnesses to the resurrection and turned the world upside down in one generation. They spread the message of the resurrection to the ends of the Roman Empire and beyond. And the world was transformed. And then, after decades of preaching this message that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, after decades... They died for that message. It is likely that all of the apostles, except John, were martyred. Many of them tortured, all of them martyred. John, although he wasn't, we don't know that he was martyred directly, he spent the end of his life in exile for this message of the resurrection. Some of you read regularly the Babylon Bee. It's a website that is a parody. It's a Christian parody website, which uh, is kind of the Christian version of The Onion. One of the articles it posted this week said this, New documents released by the Society of Biblical Scholars confirm that the resurrection of Christ was merely a complex April Fool's Day joke that got the disciples who pulled the prank off tortured or martyred or both. The document describes how Jesus' followers sneaked by the Roman guards, rolled away the stone, stole Jesus' body, and slipped away again unnoticed. The epic prank went on for thousands of years undiscovered until these new documents confirmed that the whole thing was a big, complicated hoax that got everybody involved in it slaughtered. Again, just making that age-old argument that how would these men live their lives the way they lived, suffer the way they suffered, and go to their death for something that they knew was not true. It's powerful evidence that this is an eyewitness account. They saw the risen Christ. They ate meals with the risen Christ. They walked with the risen Christ. We have reliable eyewitness accounts and great worldwide evidence that their accounts were, were to be banked upon. 
But that's not all we have. We also have the testimony of Scripture. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus, after hearing of these disciples' account of what had happened in Jerusalem, he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's saying to them, if you had really understood the scriptures, the teachings of the Old Testament, you would have known that the Messiah had to suffer for us before he could deliver us from all that is wrong in us and in the world. In verse 27 it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. If I could ever go back in history to one Bible study, that would be it. I don't know what Jesus shared with them on that day. We don't know, can't know. But think about it. There are at least 322 prophecies of Christ, of the life of Christ, the work of Christ, the words of Christ found in the Old Testament. All of the central elements of the Old Testament, the the prophets, the priests, the kings, the sacrifices, the temple, the feasts, even the events, the historical narratives of the Old Testament about the exodus and the promised land and the flood and the exile, all these things pointed to the life and identity and the work of Christ. All these things pointed to Christ. I've always said it's kind of like that jigsaw puzzle. If somebody were to take a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle and dump it on the table in front of you and tell you to put it together but didn't give you the picture on the cover to work with, it would take you forever. You need that picture to know where, how to begin to put all these pieces together, and that's what Christ is. Christ is the picture that all the pieces of the Old Testament, when you put them all together in the right connection, it all gives you a beautiful picture of our crucified and risen Christ. It said that these two disciples had said we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And I'm sure that even though we can't know what Jesus taught them in this Bible study, I'm sure that that was the focus of it. He had to teach them what redemption really was. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Just like the 11 apostles, these two disciples needed to have their understanding of redemption corrected. The Jews of that day wanted deliverance, yes, but they wanted deliverance from the power of the Romans. They wanted deliverance from earthly poverty and suffering. But the Old Testament scriptures taught clearly That the Christ, the Redeemer, when he came, had to first of all deliver us, free us from Satan and sin and the power of death itself. And so I can imagine that Jesus, when he opened the Old Testament scriptures to these two disciples, he took them to the account of the Exodus and the, the description of the Passover and showed them that he was the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world through his atoning blood. I'm sure he would have taken them to Psalm 22 because he had just quoted it on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung there, 
taking the wrath of God upon himself that our sins deserved. Psalm 22 that talks about the one who was scorned and mocked by his people, not warmly embraced by his people. Psalm 22 that talks about the Messiah who had to have his hands and feet pierced to bring about redemption. Easy to believe that he went to Isaiah and reminded them what Isaiah had revealed from God about the the Messiah, the Redeemer, being a suffering servant. As it says in chapter 53, he was a man of sorrows who was born our griefs and who was pierced for our transgressions. You see, we have eyewitness accounts that are reliable, but more importantly, we have God's account. We have Scripture. Scripture gives us God's account of history and its meaning. And it all revolves around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Scripture, we have eyewitness accounts of what God really did, of what really happened in history. And then we have the prophets and the apostles to tell us the meaning of it all for us, the relevance of it all to us. And Jesus, telling the story about the rich man and Lazarus, quotes Abraham in saying, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You need to believe Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament revelation, in order to understand the eyewitness accounts that Jesus has risen from the dead. Which brings us to the third testimony that these disciples receive that we also receive, which is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. As the three come to Emmaus, Jesus acts as though he's going to keep going. The prank continues. But the two disciples say, no, no, please. They begged him. They pleaded with him. Please come in. Stay with us. Have a meal with us. Whoever this incredibly wise stranger was, he had shown them amazing truths in Scripture. He had opened their eyes to see so much that they had never seen before, and they weren't going to let him go. And so they have a meal together, and it's interesting that Jesus acts as the host of the meal, and he's the one who breaks the bread for them. And as he breaks the bread, it says, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished. Another mystery. How does that happen? He vanished. Don't know, but the bottom line is they got a glimpse They got a glimpse with opened eyes, understanding eyes, to see who he was. It's the risen Christ. He was just here. He was with us. They got a glimpse of the risen Christ, but notice in what they say, it wasn't that that convinced them, was it? It wasn't that. In verse 32, they say, they say to each other that they should have known who he was. He says, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? It was a powerful internal witness that convinced them that Christ was risen from the dead. Something within them, something that Jesus had promised back in John chapter 15 verse 26 when he said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That is the role of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness about the risen Christ to sinners whose eyes have been opened by grace. 
You see, revelation from God by itself is not enough. We need illumination. We need the Holy Spirit to turn on the lights in our brains and in our hearts so that we can understand and receive and embrace what God has revealed to be true. If you ever heard John Wesley's testimony, the key point in that testimony is when he attended a small Moravian Bible study. And as the leader of that Bible study read from Luther, Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans, John Wesley said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Same burning that these two disciples felt from Emmaus. Not that burning of the bosom that some cults talk about, that's some kind of an inner light that's within all of us that we draw upon from inside of ourselves. No, it's a power from God. It's a presence from God. It's the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you and with you, opening your eyes, opening your ears, showing you the risen Christ, convincing you that it's true. And in many ways, you've got the word and the spirit, and that's all you need to know that it's true and to be transformed. If you're a believer, you have felt this burning in your heart many times, haven't you? As you sat there and read the scriptures and the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and softened your heart, you felt that burning, haven't you? As you said in a, in a good sermon, a sermon that is an expository biblical sermon where God's word is just being communicated to you accurately, you felt that burning, haven't you? The Holy Spirit planting the seed of the word in your heart and producing life and transformation. You know that burning if you're a believer this morning. What I'm saying is that we know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead because we've experienced his presence in our lives every day. A real presence. Spiritual, unseen, yes, but real and powerful. It is legitimate for me to say when somebody says, how do you know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? It's legitimate for me to say, I know because I just met with him this morning. I spent a good hour with him this morning. I know your unbelieving neighbors and friends and family members are going to scoff at that and laugh at that. But don't feel bad. They won't understand it. They won't accept it until they experience it. But they can experience it by the grace of God. Today, Easter Sunday happens to fall on what the world calls April Fool's Day. But the resurrection is no prank. It is no joke. It is a historical reality. And the only fool today is the one who does not believe what God has revealed to be true by his word and by his spirit. It's normal for Christians to sometimes doubt the resurrection. All of us have those moments where our faith weakens and we wonder, is it really true? Everything I've staked my life upon, is it really true? That's when we go back to the means by which God has confirmed the message about his son. The eyewitness, eyewitness accounts that are reliable and true. The scriptures that he has revealed from heaven. And the Holy Spirit that he has given to teach them to us, to enable us to embrace them by faith.
And when you find your assurance again, that is what drives your witness. Think about these two disciples. It all came together. They saw Christ. They were assured that he is risen. What did they do? It said it was late in the day. It was dark. They went running back to Jerusalem, seven miles away, in the dark, in the danger, because they were so excited to realize it was true. He was alive. And they couldn't wait to get back to the other disciples. And when they came running in, the disciples are saying, he has appeared to Simon. He is risen indeed. And so we gather today to be reassured that he is risen indeed so that we can go forth with this bold witness, sure of what we believe. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the witness of the apostles we thank you for the revelation of Scripture. We thank you this morning for the power of the Holy Spirit that has transformed us by the Word. Father, as we have gained an assurance this morning, may we be filled with that same Spirit that would empower us to take this message boldly to the world that desperately needs to hear it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.